As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show. My name is Ryan Bailey, and on today's episode, we are recapping the Champions League, both UEFA and CONCACAF varieties. Ooh, fancy. Joining me to do so today is a man who is the audio-based insight equivalent of Kylian Mbappe on the break, Taylor Rockwell. That might be the highest praise you've ever given me in an introduction to a show, and I will absolutely take it. Hi, buddy. How are you doing? I'm very good. It's good to be back on the airways with you, good sir, and it's good to be showering you with compliments from the outset as is my want <laughs> is it but i do appreciate that it's good to have you back you were missed <laughs> how was your time out west i feel like you you left me for joe and it felt weird uh i, I won the west much like Leb zeppelin in the 70s let's put it that way <laughs> t rock uh joining us also joining taylor and i is a man who is as welcome as a surprisingly good result in the Concacaf champions league from an understrength mls side <laughs> mr joseph lowry <laughs> Hello, Ryan. That was a beautifully crafted introduction, as all of your introductions are. Thank you very much, indeed. It's good to hear your lovely voice again, Joe. How are you doing today on this fine uh, morning slash evening slash afternoon slash whenever we're listening to this? I'm doing well. My eyes are a little tired from staring at my computer for 72 hours yesterday. Don't ask how that's possible in one 24-hour day. Watching all the Champions League leagues games. But man, if that's the thing I have to complain about the most, I really don't have anything to complain about at all, do I? I don't think so. Maybe you pluralize it like the French, it's Champions League. Like, there you uh, go. Grands Prix. Yeah. yeah maybe that's that. how we do it if, for, the, for this format with a, a two, two continents worth of Champions League uh, we are covering today, of course. Uh, the big ones in Europe, of course, with Bayern Munich taking on Paris Saint-Germain in Bavaria and also Porto taking on Chelsea, very much not in Portugal. We'll get to that later on. Uh, and also the Champions League uh, from the CONCACAF region as well. We're going to be covering today with Toronto and uh, the Philly Union's adventures uh, on, on their travels. Uh, before we get to that, though, gents... Something caught my eye uh, reading my uh, morning papers as I do uh, with my cup of espresso when I sit out on my deck, uh, <laughs> like, as is my one. What am I talking about today? What I'm saying is uh, <laughs> there, was a, there was an article about a European Super League written in it's published many places. The place I saw it is The Guardian, written by Philip Lahm. You may remember him from such uh, teams as Bayern Munich and Germany. Um, he is championing the idea of a European Super League. He starts off talking about sort of the rules of the game and how soccer is the most popular sport in 120 of the world's countries. Uh, He says, the brand names, they're not Facebook, Amazon and Google, but Real, Juventus, PSG, Arsenal, Barca, Bayern, City and United. Through digitization and globalization, they have developed worldwide communities. I'll follow on with a quote from here from Lam. I quite like the cosmopolitan idea underpinning a European league. At the moment, clubs from only five or six countries will participate, mainly the established teams from Madrid, Manchester, Munich, Paris and London. But as 
Just as, but just as players from Istanbul, Warsaw and Bratislava get their shot in the Euros, would it not be better to include teams from Bruges, St. Petersburg, Athens, Copenhagen and Prague in a European Super League? Investors are certainly interested in such attractive locations. It should also not be forgotten that the beginnings of the European Union came in the 1950s, yada, yada, yada. Right, are you reading us the Germany entire did. article? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the, I suppose the long quote, Tate, is the way of saying it is a very long-winded. It's written like a prospectus, like for a bank or something. It's very pro-globalization. Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on this because I was just this really stood out to me. This article because it's so weird. I recommend you look it up. It's uh, by Philip Lam, as I say. It's called a more a bigger, more diverse European Super League can help enrich football. Do you think that's true, Taylor? Because I'm not so convinced. I think that Philip Blom has been body snatched. That's what I think. This reminds me of, uh, spoiler alert for The World's End, the Simon Pegg, Nick Frost movie from a few years ago, where like everybody is taken by, I think it's aliens, and they're, they're replaced, and all the pubs are turned into like the exact same pub over and over and over again, and everything is sort of sanitized and corporatized. That's what this feels like he is advocating for. And a player who is... I think won the World Cup, if I'm not mistaken, or the very least been to a World Cup and won the Champions League, won the won the Bundesliga. For him to talk about digitization and what they've done online with their social media footprint, it just feels very like a thing that Philip Lom would not care about unless he were paid to care about it. Yeah, it feels very dirty just reading this, I think. Um, and by the way, you don't need to worry about spoilers for The World's End. Everyone's seen the entirety of the Cornetto trilogy by this point. So <laughs> I should so hope. Don't worry about I that. I should hope so. <laughs> there was another article, Joe, uh, written by uh, Jonathan Wilson on The Guardian, which I thought had relevance to this point. He said, the more super clubs play each other, the less they are battering Angers or Dijon, Mainz or Schalke, the better their defending is likely to get. The paradoxical result of a quasi-Super League designed primarily to draw eyeballs to it is that, like Serie A, in the 80s it might be more attractive to the purist than the casual observer i think joe this is my fear that if there was a european super league it might get a bit drab the defending might get better and better it might be very very i'm not saying tactical is bad um what what's the word i'm looking for here it might be less engaging than a than a bayern psg one-off in the champions league what are your thoughts on that joe I mean, I agree. Those matchups are inherently going to get less exciting because they're going to happen more often, right? We're going to see big teams going up against each other more often, which is fun, right? But at a certain point, it it gets less fun because the more often you do something, the less special it becomes. So I think there's an argument to be made that it will be exciting at a certain point if the Super League actually does happen. And the the initial games will be exciting, but after a certain period of time, it's just going to become normal again and, and the awe is going to have worn off. Yeah, you're quite right. Then you say the more you do something, the less exciting it becomes. The exception to that rule being, of course, recording the Total Soccer Show with you boys. <laughs> uh... Well done. Well done. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm here all week. Why don't we get into the Champions League UEFA uh, games we're going to cover from Wednesday? Let's start off with the big one Bayern Munich against Paris Saint Germain. This one finishing 3 2 to the French side. A great game in the snow. Snow in April, by the way. Thanks very much, Al Gore, for that one. Uh, this is Bayern's second defeated 29 games in this competition. Uh, Quite a lot better than the last time these two sides met, I would argue, in the sense that it had more goals, higher intensity. Uh, neither team really concerned with defending, particularly by a minute. We can get to that in a moment. Uh, Taylor, what did you make of this one? I thought, um, when I always started by Munich, who had 31 shots in this game, 12 on target. Uh, Kayla Navas had quite a game. We should probably give him some praise here. But Bayern's didn't... Let's put it this way. If Robert Lewandowski was playing, I feel like this would have been a very different scoreline, more in Bayern's favor. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think it is. And I think that's not even necessarily a shot at uh, Eric Chupamoteng, who did start this game, did have some chances, maybe his offside one time when he shouldn't have been, maybe could have taken it like a couple more more cleanly. But I, I do think he still had a, had a pretty good game overall. I think that just shows you how good Robert Lewandowski is, that there are those half chances that I think he makes into whole chances and usually makes into goals. And it takes that special level of a player. I always wonder what it is about Robert Lewandowski that makes him so good, because I don't think of him as being particularly fast or particularly crafty. He's just so incredibly consistent. It's similar to Kareem Benzema. And I think here you see what he does so well. is He finds those little pockets of space. He knows exactly when to time his run. He's just so good about knowing the precise little moments that make such a big difference overall that when you don't have that, 
the precision goes down a little bit and you have more imprecise finishing. You have more shots, but maybe not the percentage, uh, high percentage shots that you would normally be taking if you're Bayern Munich. Yeah, and the news as we record is that Robin Lewandowski might miss the second leg of this one as well. So Paris Saint-Germain's chances of messing this one up in the second leg have uh, somewhat diminished. Uh, Joe, I, th- I saw this one as sort of a, a tale of two attacking sides. Sort of Bayern doing their physical overload in the box and with Robert Lewandowski not finding the space. The Raumdeuter, uh, Thomas Muller routering the doim. Uh, I have not said that correctly. Uh, he, but him finding the space as well. And then you've got that against this awesome counter-attack that Paris Saint-Germain had. And it seems to sort of bounce from one end to the other. Yeah, PSG's counter-attacking moves were phenomenal. We kind of saw it from the opening stages of this game with that first goal, right? They get up to speed so quickly. And when you have Kylian Mbappe, that's that's your best game plan. PSG come out in Ligue 1 and they have to play with the ball, right? Because if you're other teams in Liga, you're not really going to step forward and press them as often as Bayern Munich are going to do. You're going to sit a little bit deeper and say, okay, PSG, break us down because we'd rather have you do that than have to deal with Kylian Mbappe in, in space and when he's at pace. In this game, Bayern Munich possessed the ball willingly and they created so many quality chances, more than more than PSG did, certainly. Bayern Munich pushed up and that leaves space in behind for Mbappe, for Neymar, for Anel Di Maria, and, and even Julian Draxler to push up in PSG's 4-2-3-1, 4-4-2, whatever you want to call it. They're so lethal in space, and when you combine that with Bayern Munich's really poor defending this season, that's been a, a theme for them this entire year, I believe, at least a couple weeks back, they were seventh in the Bundesliga in expected goals allowed, which is not catastrophic, but it's catastrophic for Bayern. They've struggled defensively this year, and PSG exposed them multiple times in this game. I, I think, think it's really they... interesting. Sorry, Ryan. I was just going to jump in to say with what Joe said, I, I totally agree. And I find it that much more inexplicable because, as I understand it, Hansi Flick goes with Hernandez instead of Alfonso Davies because Hernandez offers you more defensive stability. And you're going with a more defensive approach at that point in order to, I would assume, limit some of those attacking chances. And yet, I feel like Hernandez gets exposed on a couple of occasions. He gets played out on a couple of occasions. And I think maybe that was a tactical gamble that Hansi Flick did not get right on the day yeah it seemed there was a lot to be desired with Bayern Munich defending which is a theme that we've certainly brought up on this podcast once or twice in the past few months but it was getting caught out with the high line seems to be something that's happened again and again and it happened again with this uh, it was the Marquinhos goal where Neymar sort of put that fairly audacious assist in to beat the offside trap but nobody looked like they were anticipating it at all in the Bayern back line for that one so that seemed like they were almost just caught asleep and it wasn't Neymar wasn't reinventing the wheel by putting that ball back in like that so that was quite troubling I thought and and once again, I think we I'm guilty of hammering uh, Jerome Boateng a bit too much perhaps in general but I thought he was guilty on the third goal as well just giving far too much space doesn't try and challenge uh, Mbappe at all when he comes in um am I being fair at all there with the back line uh, Taylor um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it was a kind of comprehensive problem from start to finish. I think, as, as Joe pointed out, like the, the first goal, I mean, coming from that blistering counterattack where you do sort of have like quick combinations and then Mbappe, Mbappe's away. Uh, maybe it should have been a little bit better from Manuel Neuer there. But I think you can kind of see that once you get PSG running at pace at speed at you, it's going to cause some problems. Um, I, I, I think for the second ball, that it's just so good from Neymar. I don't understand how he is able to spot that because like maybe it was like four inches too high. Otherwise he puts it like fully onto the foot of Marquinhos while running away. And I do think that that maybe surprises Byron a little bit. And to some extent, I think it, it's almost them not being aggressive enough in their in their light at that point, because I think it's three different players from Bayern keeping Marquinhos onside. I thought for sure he was offside when I first saw it live. Going back and rewatching and just seeing the kind of scattered approach of Bayern stepping, I think there was a lot of uh, disarray with that Bayern team on the defensive side, less so on the attacking side. They seemed to keep it pretty confident and calm the whole time, but certainly defensively, I thought they were cracks. And to add to that, when Bayern Munich stepped on that Marquinhos goal, they didn't step together. They didn't check, they didn't check their shoulders and remark and communicate and establish, okay, this is our line. This is the marking scheme that we're using in this moment in the aftermath of that short corner that Bayern, that uh, PSG rather had had. They didn't remark. And then on the first goal, just to hammer this home, Bayern Munich center backs were so split. David Alaba and Nicolas Sula were so separated from each other that there was this massive gap in the middle of the field for Neymar to just dribble right through and then they get into the box and it's over at that point. So yeah, the margins are too small in the Champions League. The margins are too small when you're playing PSG 
for mistakes like this. And the fact that Bayern Munich get out of this game only down one goal, and that's largely thanks to how good they were with the ball in this game, especially in the, the second the second half and in the latter stages of the first half. Man, it is fortunate for them to come out of this one only down one. Yeah, that's interesting. I suppose there could have been more goals on either side for sure. Well, on that note, Joe, why don't we talk about um, what Paris Saint-Germain did right to come away with the win uh, on this night? What, what did Poch get right, do you think? It's so interesting because I really do think I saw a tweet from Eric Elias on Twitter talking about just how PSG are better set up for for these types of games where they can just dribble into space. I, I totally agree with that. I kind of brought it up already, but they they played that role really well. They played the role of the more defensive team, even though they don't defend very well. They uh, Neymar and Mbappe after the first 15 minutes kind of just gave up, especially Neymar on, on tracking and dealing with Joshua Kimmich at the base of Bayern's midfield. And then Julian Draxler and Di Maria were caught inside a lot. Part of that was, I think, on purpose from Pochettino. But overall, the way this team sets up to attack in games like this where they can play against the ball, they did similar things against Barcelona in the in the last round. The way that they can expose that space fits them perfectly. And and you see that when you see the goals in this game. You see the chances that they have in dangerous areas. They can get from 0 to 100 so quickly, get from their half to the other half so quickly. And I thought they did that well against Bayern Munich. And, and yeah, Joe, I think like to your, to your, like combining your two points, like with the, the tight margins, you really can't afford to make mistakes. And if it's Kimmich getting robbed that leads to the first goal, it's not stepping aggressively enough on the second, or it's maybe Boateng standing off a little bit on the third. I think it again shows you what happens if you're Bayern Munich and you don't have Robert Lewandowski, you don't have Serge Gnabry, who I think they were resting on the weekend to be fully fit for this one. Then he has the positive test and he's out. I'm not trying to solely blame injuries because though Bayern have two in this game, game uh, in the first half, I think so too do PSG. Um, so there's lots of injuries on this one. PSG missing Marco Verratti. So they too dealing with an absence of players. But I think when you look at the kind of top tier talent available to both both sides, I think you saw Neymar and Mbappe really rise to the occasion, find some good moments, exploit individual mistakes. And I think Bayern, for their part, just made more of those mistakes than they normally do. And at that level, it's always going to cost you. It, it will indeed. It does strike me that maybe PSG got slightly more depth to play with when the second uh, second round uh, second leg of this one comes around. So we'll see how that shakes out. But you mentioned Joshua Kimmich uh, there, Taylor. He had ten chances. He created ten chances in this game, the most by a single player in this competition at the quarterfinal stage or later since Meza Özil at Real Madrid against Tottenham in April 2011. Meza Özil against uh, with Real Madrid. Ah, memories. But Yoshio uh, <laughs> Kick certainly had a uh, had a good one here. Can we talk about um, Eric Maxim Chupamoting though? Obviously, playing uh, understudy to Robert Lewandowski, a tall order. Is he actually good, Joe? Maybe I'll put this one to you because <laughs> I, is it that he just has the world's best agent and he managed to go from Stoke to both of these teams? What what does he offer? Is he actually does he get does he need more credit than he gets currently? I, I don't know, Ryan. It's such an interesting question, and I love thinking about this because it's kind of the the idea of can you put a bad player, and I'm not saying Chipomoting is a bad player, but just for the sake of this thought experiment, can you put a bad player on a good team and have that player still produce? Can you put any kind of solid professional number nine, top tier, relatively speaking, in terms of, you know, has played in a solid European league, but not at a super high level. Can you put someone like that? Can you put Josh Sargent on Bayern Munich? And have him get chances like the ones that Chippo Moting got against PSG? I think the answer is yes. And so I tend to think, Ryan, that he's got a, a really, really good agent with some really good connections. Because that's <laughs> not to say he's a bad player. He gets into space that he needs to get into. He's in the right spots to finish. And clearly he's capable of doing that from time to time. But I'm not convinced that Chippo Moting is... Is 20 times the player that I, I just am using the American example here because I can. I'm not, I'm not convinced that Chippewa Moting is 20 times the player that Josh Sargent is and that Sargent wouldn't have similar production for a team like Bayern Munich. Uh, age 32, Chippewa Moting has never got past 10 league goals in a season for any of his eight professional teams. Yet here he is uh, leading the line for Bayern Munich. Interesting I that feel, one. I suppose I like a, rising, you guys are being, a rising tide lifts all boats, doesn't it, Taylor? I feel like you guys are being a little bit harsh here because I think he he's put in, in a position where, like, yeah, he's not Robert Lewandowski. I think he's meant to be the understudy to him. But I think the larger point maybe is that if you look at some of Bayern's transfer activities, 
they were not particularly strong th- this this summer, and I think that's been a source of contention for Hansi Flick. And some of the signings they made, you have uh, Mark Roca. I don't even know if he was on the bench for this one. You have Bunasar, who was on the bench but did not play. And then uh, Chuba Motang comes in on a free. So the players they're spending money on aren't playing. The players that they're bringing in for free because they can't afford or maybe don't want to spend money on more expensive players, I think they're putting in there, but they're not really able to perform to that level. So I think it's a little bit you're getting what you pay for and a little bit that he's just not that next level world-class player like Robert Lewandowski. But I would say the argument would be that Leroy Sané could probably be that player and probably could have stepped up. And I think he, I think he had probably the poorest night of any Bayern player, not even saying he had a bad night, just that I don't think he was nearly as effective as he needed to be in Lewandowski's absence. Isn't that Taylor because he just doesn't shoot? <laughs> what do you mean? The the maybe I can. I guess if he, if you told him that the goal was a teammate and he could pass to it, maybe then he would. But yeah, the number of cutbacks in this one that was. I, I think that was maybe the the other thing that I found so confusing from Byron is that th- there is this relentless relentlessness. I wrote it down. Uh, I forget what minute it was, but it's just they just keep going. They don't they don't ever really stop. It just kind of keeps swarming with attackers. Like and then we're like they're going to attack, and if they end up shooting wide and it's a goal kick they're going to attack some more and there's this kind of like collective attacking spirit but I think with that maybe you need that player who will be like give me the ball I'm going to shoot give me the ball I want to score and if everybody's trying to pass and pass and and like have the FIFA goal where you square it and the goalkeeper's out of position and you can just tap it in maybe that works but against maybe a, a, a stronger more organized defense maybe it doesn't and maybe that's part of why Byron weren't able to get those clear clear cut chances that I think they were looking for. Maybe so, maybe so, Tete. One player I wanted to mention was Thomas Muller. Uh, I, I caught my eye because I thought he, he he sort of got progressively more hilarious as the game went on. Like he, he started off really well with the, sort of the creating space for Chupamoting for Bayern's first goal. Then there was a point later on in the second half where he sort of did a fairly comical overhead kick impression. And then even later than that, really late on in the game, he had that shot where he hit his own standing foot with the ball. That was wonderful. I've never seen that at this level before. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> also bleeding copiously from the head and not being aware of it. That would happen yeah. as well. Um, are you all familiar? This is a, a phrase from long ago. Do, are you all familiar with the term or with the phrase Muller hello? I, I am roughly familiar with it. I believe I remember when you and Daryl came up with that, but I want to hear the backstory again. Yeah, so it's it's the basically it's the exact opposite of the Irish goodbye, which is the sort of just like leaving the event without saying goodbye. It's just sort of fading away into the night. And, and that's how you, you call it an evening. With Thomas Muller, it's the exact opposite of that. It's like showing up in an unexpected place when everybody thought you were you had left for the evening and then suddenly you're there and suddenly you're scoring. The American alternative of it is the Christian Press Gutentag. Uh, we felt like we needed to balance out the American-German. Uh, but yeah, Thomas <laughs> Muller has another Muller hello here where he's just sort of drifting around and then realizes like, oh, no one is marking me. Lovely. I'll be wide open for this goal. It made me very happy. Yeah, it was Muller time indeed, if we're going <laughs> to uh, evoke old phrases. Um, one other thing I want to talk about is killing Mbappe against Manuel Neuer in this game. Because with Mbappe's two finishes, w- what do we make of those? Because I thought he almost mi- hit, mishit both of them. Because for the first goal, he didn't aim for the giant open part of the goal. He just used sheer power to put it through Manuel Neuer's legs. And was that deliberate? Because he maybe threw Manuel Neuer off because Manuel Neuer was almost leading him to shoot at the far post. He ended up going the other way. Was that, it just looked a bit clumsy, but maybe that was uh, 4D chess from Kylian Mbappe, Taylor. I think it absolutely was. Because I've, my most like embarrassing when I had to play indoor goalie, my most embarrassing goal was when I thought a player was going to square the ball. So I like dove for the square and then he just, passed it past my diving feet and into the wide open goal at that point. And I was like, oh, I've, I've overthought this. And I think, yeah, Manuel Neuer is clearly diving to the right, expecting that shot to go to the far post, thinks he's won the mental game, and then Kylian Mbappe puts it right at the near post. Neuer, I think if he's not diving, makes that save. But because he's, his kind of center of gravity is off, he can't make the actual defensive play. He just has to use his body body not strong enough and in it goes for the third one I think he just spots that gap from Jerome Boateng of standing off a little bit and and picks his spot very well very good indeed well um Joe you're famous for your love of my uh answering my predictions for future games uh so how do you think this one will shake out in the second leg because it seems very delicately poised I feel like with no Lewandowski potentially in the second leg that really uh might affect the dynamic I would hope that we get at least as many goals. I want five goals in the second leg. What do you think? 
Uh, I'm going to say PSG will win the second leg simply because they have these three away goals. I mean, they might not win the second leg, but they're going to win this tie because they did put themselves in a good spot with these three away goals in the first leg. T-Rock? Yeah, I think it's it's always... I was trying to figure out today what the situation would have to be for me to say, like, I don't know, Bayern have a chance because I think it's Bayern Munich until they're not winning. Until they like don't win a series of games, I, I'm always going to think that there's a chance they'll win. I think not having Lewandowski for the second leg is, is such a massive blow for a team that will need two goals. So I do lean PSG, but I feel incredibly uncomfortable about it just because it's Bayern Munich. And at the end of the day, I expect them to just overwhelm with you know d- tactical discipline and quick little passes and suddenly maybe PSG get nervous but I just I think if PSG play the same game and I think they can I think they come away with the win it's weird for us to be talking about Bayern like this isn't it it, it really is like, it feels like sacrilege it almost feels like a former Bayern Munich player writing about how great the European <laughs> Super League would be sacrilege I tell you sacrilege Anyway, gents, why don't we move on to the next Champions League game we're going to cover, Porto against Chelsea, right after these very important messages. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. We are back. We are covering the UEFA Champions League and we are heading to Seville for Porto against Chelsea. This one finishing 2-0 to the team from southwest London. A pretty decent bounce back from their puzzling result against uh, West Brom. Uh, Joe, this one is being labelled as a sort of game that Frank Lampard would have lost. Uh, maybe an ironic, an ironic uh, tint there because uh, Lampard Jr. aka Mason Mount won it for them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can call it that. I'm also not sure this is a game. I mean, I, it, let me rephrase that. I think this is a game that Thomas Tuchel is very close to losing, and he's not even Frank Lampard, right? I think Chelsea come into this game, and I thought, I thought they were poor relative to Porto. No, no verbal pun intended there. I think the way that Porto <laughs> approached this game is just another. Man, another gold star for Sergio Conceição, their manager. He approached this game so well defensively. They came out in what looked like a 4-4-2, but they had their wide midfielders drop into the back line to deal with Chelsea's five-man front line in in Tuchel's 3-2-5 possession shape with the wingbacks just joining the front three to make five. They kept a numerical advantage in their back line. And then the way they used their two central midfielders, it was oftentimes two of Grijic, Uribe, and Otavio marking Kovacic and Jorginho so that those two guys could almost never get on the ball. And then whichever of those three Porto players wasn't dealing with Jorginho or Kovacic, he would step forward alongside Marega and mark two of the two of the Chelsea center backs and make it really hard for them to circulate the ball. Porto nailed almost every part of their defensive game plan. They had good offensive chances. Man, I, I came away with this not necessarily comparing Frank Lampard and Thomas Tuchel, but thinking, man, Conceição's come up with another good game plan, and it's unfortunate that they weren't able to get the result. I'm very excited to talk about this a little bit, though, Joe, because I, I kind of had the opposite take on what Conceição did interesting. Uh, from, from this one, just because I, I remember thinking, oh, they're in like a 6-1-3 or a 6-2-2. Wh- where have I seen this before? Oh, right. It was Porto in the last round. So I went back and looked at my notes when when they did eventually end up getting past Juve. And a lot of it was Taremi obviously gets the red card. So they're playing a man down. But my notes kept being Porto were dropping too deep and they have they're too flat of a line. And once you're missing that extra man, you can't close down that space as much. So they don't they do have full squad here in this game. But I think initially, and, and you're right that in those first 30 minutes or so, I felt like Ch- Chelsea really struggled with the way Porto defended. I think as the game went on, maybe Porto got a little more tired. Maybe they just lost a little bit of discipline. 
but the goal itself comes from the exact same problems they are having against Juve. They drop too deep. Uh, Jorginho is is deeper. He has uh, what Aspilicueta and Rudiger, I think, on either side. Andreas Christensen is a little bit deeper. And now those Porto players have to get to him quickly because he has about 15 yards of space when he receives the ball. He takes it away from the closest Porto player. So now Porto collapse a little bit. And in so doing, I think they kind of just have a flat six. Mason Mount is able to find that little gap. And I think them doing some of the same stuff as they did against Juve defensively. I think Thomas Tuchel watched that footage, spotted that as an opportunity if he could get the right numbers in midfield. And I do think that's a big reason how they're able to get this opening goal. I don't disagree. I don't disagree, but I I guess we're going to debate this briefly. That moment, if you rewind, and I did this multiple times yesterday, if you rewind (laughs) the buildup to Chelsea's goal, Mm -hmm. it comes from a moment where Porto lose the ball. Porto had been more aggressive. They were trying to take their chances and generate chances in the attack. They lose the ball, and then they're a little bit too slow to get back into that 6-3-1 or 6-2-2, and that's when Chelsea pounce. It's right around the 30th, 31st, 32nd minute, whatever it was in the lead-up to that goal. But Chelsea had almost nothing before that moment, and it, it does illustrate the danger of playing a more defensive system and using a more defensive approach because the margins, again, are so small in situations like this. But man, if you're Porto and if you're Conceição and you say, okay, in the first 30 minutes, you're going to really have only one defensive breakdown, you take that 11 times out of 10. So yeah, tough, tough situation for Porto, but I still think they, they defended really, really well in this game and attacked pretty well too at times. Yeah, I think that's probably a fair place to land on is that, again, we come down to the the fine margins of if everybody's playing the exact way they want to be playing and they've all drilled and prepared accordingly and you have multi-million dollar players on one side and players who will be soon be sold for multi-million dollars on the other. Uh, like, yeah, I think eventually it comes down to just that one or two little moments where the player switches off and maybe one or two yeah. moments when the opposite side has a brilliant moment of skill, which is what I would say yeah. Mason Mount had for that goal. Yeah, definitely. Fine margins indeed. And, and that, that term for the goal making all the difference there, certainly for the opening goal. I, I feel I'm more inclined to agree with Joe in that I, if I was a Porto fan, I'd feel like, the team at least deserved to draw out this one. Lots of early chances, you know, lots of decent attempts, uh, some some decent pressing to get back into the game. I, I, I wonder whether I am speaking with English bias here, gents. But I thought I thought that there was a lot of poophousery going on from Porto and sort of falling over and complaining, even with Sergio Conceição at one point handling the like taking a touch of the ball as well, which is which is quite unusual for the, the manager to do um, before sending his own child onto the field. We should add, um, <laughs> but. but uh, it's, it seemed like when they wanted to play, and when they weren't poop ing they were, looked pretty good. And I thought that they could have maybe deserved more out of that. Is that fair to say, Joe? Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, we haven't even gotten to CONCACAF Champions League yet. So save, save even more room yeah. for poop discussion later on, because there'll be plenty <laughs> of that. But yeah, man, just again, to reiterate, I thought Porto were very good in this game. I think they've been good in... In every single knockout round game they've had, and maybe I'm maybe I'm misremembering parts of that Juve game that you walked through, Taylor, earlier. That game was insane, that second leg against Juventus. But Porto approached this game really well. They said, Chelsea, you have to break us down. That's what we demand you to do. And they absorbed that pressure well for so much of this game. They got out on the break well. They pressed at times. More so, I think, than they were able to do, you know, maybe with the exception of the early stages of their first leg against Juventus in the round of 16, they pressed and made life difficult for for Chelsea in their own half, Chelsea's own half. That's really impressive, and it's a bold thing to do. Man, If even even if Tecatito doesn't miscontrol that ball or or if he just doesn't see Ben Chilwell later in the second half and Porto get out of this game with a one nothing defeat, it's not a great result for them. But you think they have a good chance headed into that second leg, but 2-0 down at home, well, at home, parentheses in Sevilla is a tough result for them in this one it is but I think this is the other thing and we're jumping around a little bit but for that second goal I think this is in my mind sort of directly connected to the other mistake that I think Conceição makes which is he makes a triple substitution in the 83rd minute and that's his first change of the game that's the first substitution they make and so you have players that are are pretty fatigued at this point worth noting Chelsea have made four changes by the time he he makes that triple change so you've got the tired legs but I think also when you're changing 
like roughly a third of your team, like it takes a minute. It takes a little bit of time for everybody to figure out like, okay, this is what he was doing. Okay, I'll adjust. Because that's always the case when you have a new player come on as a substitute. And when you have three of them come on, I think it takes that much more time to like, oh no, that guy's been standing three yards like further to the right or further to the left. So he has to kind of figure out what he needs to be doing on the fly. And it's therefore not a surprise to me that he makes a triple change. I think Pulisic hits the bar one minute later and then a minute yeah. after that, there's this misplay from Tecatito that leads to the second goal. So maybe again, this is sort of nitpicking. It reminds me of um, if people watch Top Chef, Tom Calicchio, one of the judges, talks about how like when you get to the later rounds, they're literally being like he used a quarter tablespoon of salt too much. Like that's how specific they're being. And I guess that's probably what I'm being here because I know that it ends in a 2-0 loss. And so watching it probably through that lens, I think I spot more of those moments that lead to the loss as opposed to the things that almost kept Porto in it. So maybe there's a little bit of like viewing bias almost, but that was another incident where I was sort of like, uh, did that change lead to that goal? Did that change lead to those mistakes? That's where I was a little bit more uh, in the weeds or confused, whichever one. Yeah, we've all been badly affected by Corona, but Porto more than others in this game. <laughs> boom, boom. Thank you very much. Uh, why don't we three seconds Chelsea? to get. <laughs> Do you know why he's called Tecatito, by the way? Because that's another one that always makes me laugh. Go on. Uh, when he was playing for Monterrey, so they, the commentators got to this point of the game. They said it was a nickname from when he played for Monterrey, which is true. Uh, it's because Monterrey were sponsored by Tecate. So Corona had a Tecate name, and I think the Monterrey jerseys, the player name is on the bottom and the sponsor name was on the top. On the top so it always yeah. looked like Corona was named Te- Tecate. His players, uh, then his teammates named him Little Tecate, I believe. Tecatita. <laughs> oh, I feel like Philip Lahm would approve of that. <laughs> Probably so. <laughs> yes. The, the corporate sponsor now owns your last name. That's how this works. <laughs> Um, from a Chelsea perspective, we saw Timo Werner and Kai Havertz, as you alluded to, come off uh, with uh, Christian Pulisic and Olivier Giroud replaying, uh, replacing them just after the hour. Pulisic looking pretty good, as you say, in the crossbar. In the crossbar, and he's, he's sort of getting some really good minutes underneath him, Joe, at the moment, is he not? That was an awkward way of phrasing the, the fact that he's playing quite well at the moment. He was sort of, I think, toward, with about 10 minutes to go, he was absolutely body-checked and flattened by uh, someone who's named uh, for passes me by but um be careful because he's very delicate but Pulisic looking good is my point Joe yeah I don't disagree at all I thought he came off the bench and had some really bright moments Taylor you mentioned him hitting the bar he drew a yellow card with a nice dribble a little bit earlier in his substitute appearance I think I think he was solid I do think though because the natural progression in this conversation is okay well when when does he break into the starting 11 in, in a consistent basis when does he become first choice and I'm not sure that's coming around the corner anytime soon I think almost when you come off the bench in a situation like this and you you have the impact that you have and Thomas Tuchel has the attacking options in front of him that he does have, I think that just leads to more future substitute cameos for Pulisic. Maybe that's really bad, flawed logic. But if I'm Thomas Tuchel, I don't really see a need to change the formula after a Pulisic performance like that. Taylor, could could he could he get more starts over, say, Habits? I mean, I think, I think he could. I think what I, the other thing that I was wondering today uh, is... Like, is the idea, I'm going to go Bobby Warshaw here for a second, I apologize to you oh, both yeah. in advance. Is the idea of a starting 11 a, a sort of fan construct? Because I think about, like, most modern football clubs, I think about even, like, the way I play FIFA. And I never have a, like, this is my starting 11 that I'm always going to play if they're healthy. And I and I kind of don't think modern football coaches have that either, because you have to have so many different players doing so many different things in so many different competitions, especially with coronavirus. I don't know if you can have that, like, this is who I have to have. uh, And if I don't, then I can have replacements, but we're going to be in trouble. I think part of the game is sort of adjusting your approach based on the opponent, based on the form of your players, and based on the kind of talent you have. And so if you're playing a team where a false nine is going to work, then maybe it is Christian Pulisic and you have a front three of like Mason Mount, Timo Werner and Christian Pulisic and they kind of rotate through. And so I think this is a long-winded way of answering your question, Ryan, but I I think, yes, we probably will start to see him get more starts, but I don't think that means he'll be in the sort of the 11 because I'm not sure that's a thing that Thomas Tuchel necessarily has. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there is one. And like, I welcome you all both to call me out on that one. But that's sort of where I am with this is that like, if he's coming on, in a Champions League what quarterfinal and getting half an hour or 25 minutes and looking lively and having an impact, 
to some extent, I think I'm okay with that because it means that he's in that rotational group. Fair enough. Well, when we talk about the rotational group, how about Timo Werner, who I wouldn't say had the greatest of games uh, in this one, but I almost liken him to Thomas Muller in the role he's doing. He's, he's not he's not false nine, but he's 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 drawing players away. He's he's doing the the dirty work to give other people space. Is that fair to say, Joe? Absolutely, yeah. It's it's a little bit of a, a narrow left winger role, right? He tucks inside when Chilwell or when Marcos Alonso drives forward from that left wing back spot. So Werner's then more narrow, and then oftentimes, not as much in this game, at least I didn't see it as much, but oftentimes that front three will interchange and rotate, and, and they'll have freedom to move into different spaces. And all the things I just said kind of apply to Thomas Muller as well. I don't think this game presented a lot of opportunities for Timo Werner to do what he's best at, to make his driving runs in behind the back line, to stretch the opponent back and, and to push them back and then create space in midfield just because of how Porto approached this game defensively compact. Even when they pressed, they were compact. But yeah, I think that's a fair description of Timo Werner's role and a, a solid comparison, at least in some ways, to Thomas Muller, mm. for sure. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> why, don't, why don't we also talk about the other part of that triumvirate who are up front, uh, Mason Mount, who we have touched on a, a little bit, who obviously got that first goal. Very talented player is he. I kind of feel Taylor like he's... He's the guy who's got the weight of the team on his shoulders like Eden Azar used to. It seems like he does play that role from time to time. My question for you, though, Taylor, is when England win the Euros, mm-hmm. who picks up the trophy first, him or Phil Foden? I'm going to say Mount. I think it's, I think it's Mason Mount. I, I think uh, maybe they hoist it together. But, but I have a feeling Mason Mount maybe has that, like, I don't know. Maybe they're both kind of laddish. What's the age difference there? It's close, right? It's it maybe it's I think Mount's a year or two older. I'm not entirely sure about that. Yeah, I think Mount is closer to the trophy when it's lifted. I'll say that. Even if he's not the one hoisting it, I feel like he's like getting his medal and standing front and center for sure. <laughs> Thank you for answering that question. How do you feel about my uh, uh, my comparison to Eden Hazard? Into I don't want to say carrying the team. That's that because that's that will detract from the professional job that Chelsea did here. But almost like a standout reliance, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, I think, and I think I would extend it to like, not to the degree that Aiden Hazard was, but he does seem to be a slightly polarizing figure, both for some Chelsea fans and for neutrals, because I think he has that connection to Frank Lampard from Derby. He has this perception that, oh, he's Frank Lampard's guy. He's going to like make Frank Lampard's team. And so then there's the question of, well, is he that good compared to the players they've brought in? And so maybe that's where there's a little bit of like, I think there are some people who are always going to nitpick his performances. I think I was probably one of those for a while, but Moments like he has in this game, I think, show you where he does have the skill of Aiden Hazard that then backs up that comparison all the more. Because to be able to find the little bit of space that he does, and it is, it's just, again, the fine details, the moving back towards the ball a yard and maybe like two feet over, but then shifting back over to the left so that uh, I forget who tries to make the play on the ball that basically ends up not working. But I mean, that that's why that happens is because his positioning is so solid. I think it's Zaidu who dives in. Uh, but I think that's really great from him. And then just the technical ability to get the turn and then to finish with his second touch the way he does. Yeah, that's a thing that I would have expected from Aiden Hazard. So yeah, I think I see it again. There we go. It was Zaidu indeed, by the way, putting in that challenge, which uh, Mount evaded. Uh, this was the first time two English players have scored uh, for Chelsea in the Champions League since 2012. It was Lampard and Terry who did it then. 2012. We all know what happened in that year. Um, it's 2-0 that, that Chelsea take the lead in this uh, leg of the uh, of the of this fixture. This one took place in Seville. The away fixture is going to be taking place in Seville uh, next week, <laughs> which is a quite a, an odd uh, circumstance. I suppose that does somewhat affect the dynamic of the game because both teams have effectively kind of had two away games, if that makes sense, in, yeah. this, in this pandemic sort of situation. Joe, we're going back to our regular fixture, which I know you <laughs> love dearly, which is to tell me the scoreline of the second leg. Here. Oh, let me rephrase that. Do Porto have a chance of getting back into this one? They absolutely have a chance. Do I think they will? No. I think Chelsea are going to advance from this. I don't know who's going to win that second leg, but Chelsea put themselves in a good spot with this 2 nothing win. I think they are certainly sitting in the catbird seat for the return leg of sorts. The what seat? 
the catbird seat. Isn't that? I might be misusing an expression here, but I think that's. Is like, that where you lost steam just then, Joe? I feel like you said catbird, and then sort of like immediately were like, should I use that phrase? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. Don't mind me. Um, I'm gonna be googling catbird seat while Taylor no, right? answers that his question. Sense. Yeah. Yeah. What is no, the word it, you're saying? Cattenburg. Cat, no, no, just the little cat and bird put into one word. It's when the cat would sit next to the birdcage, right? So it's like if the bird can escape, the cat is yeah. there to eat it. I used it right, darn it. I used it right. You the catbird seat is an American English idiomatic phrase used to describe an enviable, enviable position. Boom, I can read from the internet during yeah, the show. From too, 1957, Ryan. Joe. You're using, <laughs> you're using turns of phrase from like the 50s, man. I feel like yeah, I should be applauded um, for that and not ridiculed, you know? <laughs> Well, uh, uh, we're going to take a short break. I'm going to go watch some Sylvester and Tweety Pie cartoons to catch up with uh, Joseph Lowry's references. Uh, We'll be back very shortly (laughs) with some CONCACAF Champions League. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We are back in the catbird seat with the CONCACAF <laughs> Champions League. Uh, the daddy of CONCACAF around these parts is Mr. Joseph Lowry. Uh, I would like to come to you first. We're going to be talking about the two games that happened on Wednesday. Leon against Toronto, which finished 1-1. And Deportiva uh, Saprissa. How- I'm sorry. I'm, I'm you nailed the, it. Is it Saprissa? Is that yeah, how I yeah, go? Saprisa. Saprisa. Yeah, you Saprissa. Thank you very much. Deportivo Saprissa, who I watch every single week uh, in Costa Rica, of course, how, hence my correct pronunciation of the name, who took on Philadelphia Union uh, with the Union getting a 1-0 win there. Let's start off with the action uh, with Leon, uh, who were le- the champions of the 2020 Apertura. Uh, Joe, uh, Toronto, lower strength team in this game due to some injuries. Um did, did pretty well despite not being at their best. Is that a fair summary of this of this contest? I think it's a fair summary of the first 30, 35 minutes, maybe. And maybe I'm, I'm being harsh because they were... Toronto was facing a lot of absences here. They're missing the MLS MVP from last season, Alejandro Pozuelo. They're missing Ayo Akinola, mm-hmm. who's a big goal scorer for them, or at least was last season. They're missing Jonathan Osorio. They're missing their best center back in Chris Mavinga. And they're playing a lot of younger guys in this group. So it's a, it's a tough situation. It's Chris Armas' first game in charge of Toronto. I'm not trying to take any of, of those challenges away from Toronto. I thought they were really good, or at least pretty good, in the first 30, 35 minutes in a 4-4-2. But with kind of narrow wingers, they pressed in certain moments. Josie Altidore led that press up top, which is something I'm going to be watching for this season whenever Josie is healthy. How does he actually press? He came out in the second half with a hamstring injury, so we'll see how that goes. But Toronto showed some nice things. They showed some idea of how they wanted to play under Chris Armas, and that's encouraging, even if for the last 60 minutes of this game they were back on their heels trying and praying that they weren't going to concede uh, a second goal from Lyon and, and leave with pretty much nothing. I guess leave with an away goal from Lyon, which is still a good spot, but you get the idea. Hey, Joe. Uh, sorry, I had a quick question for you because I, I am certainly not as up to date as Toronto as you. Uh, I have their sort of their lineup in front of me, such as it was last night in the four two three one. Like, where would you have if they were a full strength team? This is like a two parter. What does that starting 11 look like? Who's in there? Where? Basically, like I'm assuming, for example, uh, Priso Mbonge is maybe not starting. Yeah, so if if this is a full-strength Toronto team, you're probably looking at Josie Altidore and Pozuelo as the the 9 and then the 10 that defend in a, a kind of a straight front 2 in a 4-4-2. Then you're probably looking at Delgado and Osorio in... I, I mean, Delgado played a bunch of different roles in this game. So Delgado could yes, be next to Michael Bradley. Osorio could be out wide playing one of those narrow winger roles. We don't, we don't really know exactly how Chris Armas is going to evaluate these players and where he thinks they're best suited to play. But at center back, we certainly would have seen Chris Mavinga start over either Eric Zavaleta or Omar Gonzalez. But the shape looks similar. It's just a matter of pretty much plugging in Pozuelo, Osorio, and uh, Mavinga, and then maybe using Akinola off the bench. And then the second part of the question was, 
Uh, how how worrying do you think it should be for Toronto fans? Again, this is a question of ignorance, but from this game last night, that uh, Lorea will still be the starting right back because he seemed to have a bit of a time dealing with Leon's attack, and that didn't seem like a thing that got that much better throughout. He gets cut up pretty bad in the, I think it was the 74th minute, but there was a few other times, uh, certainly in the first half, when he seemed to, either maybe it was positional, maybe it was 1v1, but either way, he, he's tended to struggle, I thought, in dealing with some of Leon's attack down that left side, Toronto's right. Richie Larea struggles in transition moments defensively. He okay. struggles to stay connected with the back line. I think he has the instincts of a more attacking player. And that's, that's something that I know a few other people share. Or a few other, you know, regular Toronto watchers share that same opinion. I think against a high octane Liga Mekis team, he's a tough player to have in your back line. He's a player that Toronto need just simply from a depth and personnel standpoint. But when it's MLS and when it's against, you know, almost any other team in Major League Soccer, uh-huh. he's not nearly as much of a liability he turns into much more of an asset as toronto gotcha. can be more on the front foot all right thank you uh ryan that was my abbreviated toronto season preview for myself and now i have it written out of my notes <laughs> what would have happened otherwise now back <laughs> to you ryan <laughs> thank you very much well the return leg of this one is uh happening next week in kissimmee florida because Sevilla stadium was unavailable evidently for this one um it's you gotta you gotta be pleased to take a point away from you know Liga Mekis, uh a powerhouse if you will Joe with with, with a get, getting a draw in this one that that has to be viewed as a positive right 100 percent right yeah sorry 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 to cut you off there Ryan I think you know TFC's one goal comes from a fluke it comes from a ridiculous own goal go look it up it's it's insane it's like a 24 or 26 yard own goal from a Leon defender it's it's beautiful in some sad twisted way Toronto <laughs> get this result almost get a <laughs> yeah, Bournemouth get it. It's a tough, it's a tough result for Leon, certainly, because they are prioritizing this competition after a disappointing recent run in Liga Mekis. But man, for Toronto, this is great. This is everything you ever could have hoped for to get out of an away game against a Liga Mekis team in CCL. Your team is in preseason. You're missing four starters at a minimum, maybe five. I mean, this is a phenomenal result from them. Even if it wasn't a beautiful performance for 90 plus minutes, you take this all the time. You take this 100% of the time if you're Toronto FC. Yeah, and and Joe, I would I would double down on that by saying like like for me, a person who has some questions about Chris Armas taking over and and what he's going to do uh, with Greg Vanny's departure, I think for him to make a a pretty I would say proactive change at halftime, Okello comes off, uh, uh, Gallardo comes on. I think Delgado moves more central, and now he and Josie are switching in the in the uh, nine and ten sort of roles. But I think that that happens at halftime, and five minutes later. It is Gallardo who applies the pressure that leads to the turnover, that leads to that counterattacking opportunity. So I think that's a proactive change from Armas. I would also say that I think the ball in for Altidore, if Moscata doesn't go for the, or Moscata, excuse me, doesn't go for the, the sliding challenge. I watched this a bunch because at first I thought it was definitely not going to get to Josie or going to go way out in front of him. Watching it again, the angle and the way Josie's running, I think there's a chance he's able to get on the receiving end of this, in which case it's basically a touch and then a finish and it's a goal. Maybe he doesn't get there, but I think that change and the sort of aggressiveness from Toronto in those first five and ten minutes is what made the difference. So a, a proactive change leads to a, a positive result. I think all good things for Toronto. All good things for Toronto. Joe, you mentioned Leon prioritizing Leon prioritizing this competition. Um, that leads me to sort of a, a more general question about this competition and where it sits in the MLS landscape. Forgive me if we're going over old ground here, but where do you guys view this competition? Like, is is it more important for Toronto to win MLS Cup or to win this? I mean, I know that's a bit of a, 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 a sealed question to ask, but, you know, it seems tradition for an MLS team to not have a full-strength lineup to go into these kind of games. And it's, you know, there's always this sort of inevitable heartbreak that comes from this competition <laughs> for the American sides, if I'm not being too harsh about that. So where does this sit in terms of uh, where it sits on the pedestal of achievement for a team? Joe, I'll let you go first there. It's a really big question, but it's a great question, Ryan. I don't think you're retreading old ground here because this is sort of a constantly evolving topic. MLS has never won the current iteration of the CONCACAF Champions League. They've never successfully won. I believe they've been in the final four times, but they've never actually been able to win it. Toronto came really close a few years ago against Chivas, but they couldn't quite get it done. So, I mean, teams have come really close, and I think it's important for MLS teams to prioritize this competition because it's... Whether we like it or not, and whether it's the best actual example of this, it is pretty much the one real comparison 
between MLS and Liga Mekis. And until MLS starts really competing in competitions like this, when until MLS really goes down to Mexico and we're not shocked when they get a 1-1 draw in CONCACAF Champions League, until that starts happening more regularly and MLS teams actually start to win it, it's really hard to make an argument for MLS as even you know, one of the best leagues in North and Central America, let alone the world, which is what Don Garber supposedly wants to turn this league into. So yeah, I think MLS teams do need to prioritize that. It's hard. The circumstances are difficult. The timing is really bad for this opening round. It always has been. But it is still an important competition that should be prioritized by these teams. Are they prioritizing it? I think so. But I don't really have any way to know that. Taylor, anything to add to that? That was a pretty comprehensive answer. It was. Um, so I will add some things that would make it less comprehensive. Um, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with Joe. I think confusingly, it's like it's a thing that individual clubs who are participating in it, like they aren't going, they would always rather win MLS Cup, I think. Toronto would rather win MLS Cup than win the CONCACAF Champions League. Man, I don't know. And I think they're, they're varying, you know, well, I think it's because keep going, keep they're going. varying. Well, I was just going to say, like, <laughs> it's because. I think part of it is that it's not at the end of the season. So even if you win it there, they're still like, yeah, but then you didn't make the playoffs. So who cares? Like, I think it's it's this sort of strange timing. But I also think, to Joe's point, it has been almost perceived as, as a distraction at certain points. But when you had much more, like, limiting roster restrictions than we have now, when you can't have as many players, you can't spend as much money, you don't have the depth, that was always the kind of killer blow in my mind for Major League Soccer teams, is that when they play these teams in the later rounds who do have depth, who do have the money when, when it's Tigres who can afford Gignac and a bunch of other world-class players, or at least very, very good players. That's always going to be the difference maker. And so strangely, I think that like individual fan bases might care more about winning MLS cup, but I think it is always interesting to me that anytime you do have in those four times that we've had an MLS team in the modern uh, incarnation in the final, it's always like a thing that people are rooting for. When it's Montreal, I remember caring. I remember DC fans rooting for Montreal, though they have no reason to do so. But because I think there is a, like, it's the league at that point. You're representing the entire league. And I think that's where it becomes really important. So it's almost, in my mind, more important for fans, broadly speaking, in Major League Soccer than it is maybe anybody else. I think teams really care about it. But I think that's sort of where it exists in my mind is a thing that when an MLS team keeps going, it gets really, really exciting. And I really, really care because I would really, really like someone to win it because what the last team was the Galaxy in 2000, I believe. Yeah, it's it's been a while. And and I want to go back, Taylor, I don't want to cut you off there if you have anything else to say, but okay. I want to go back to something you said. You know, it it is difficult in the past this competition's been scheduled such that it's done really early in the season. And then by the time the playoffs come around and everyone's focused on that, it it does feel like it's out of sight, out of mind a little bit. They changed the format actually headed into this year. Now the final's going to be held in October. And the semifinals yep. will be in August and the quarterfinals will be in, in late April and early May. I think that's going to help a lot, both in terms of allowing teams to to be up to strength. Then you deal with injuries and all that stuff. I, I get that. But it does help it be out of sight, out of mind a little bit less, which I think is a positive development from an MLS standpoint. I do like the sound of that scheduling. We'll see how that shakes out. Gents, let's turn our attention to our final CONCACAF Champions League game. Deportivo Saprissa, who took on the Philadelphia Union. The Union getting a 1-0 win in this one in Costa Rica. Uh, Deportivo Saprissa was second in last year's league at FPD. And as you may have heard in a recent Soccer 101 episode, the team is nicknamed the Purple Monster, which is a brilliant nickname, by the way. Their stadium is called the Monster's Cave naturally. Uh, on numerous occasions, US soccer stars have complained or mentioned that it's a difficult and intimidating atmosphere to play in. Alexi Lalas being one of them, Clint Dempsey being another who mentioned the proximity of the stands and the artificial turf as being problematic. Joe, this union side, they didn't have Brendan Harrison anymore, but they're still holding their own in games like this. Yeah, they are. It was a good result for the union against a a relatively weakened Saprissa side, you know, again, relative to past iterations of this team. They're historically the best team in Costa Rica, and this year they're not. But it's still a, it's still a tough game to go down and actually get a result from. And the fact that Philadelphia got a one nothing win, it's impressive. They didn't play beautiful soccer. They didn't play exactly how Jim Curtin's going to want them to be playing in June or in July, August, October, whatever. I skipped September there for some weird reason. But the team is very much still learning. They're getting used to playing without uh, Brendan Aronson and Mark McKenzie. But... The building blocks are there. The 442 diamond is there. The aggressive attacks are there. The press is there at times. This looked like the union, and that's a good spot to be in in your first real game of the season. 
Yeah, and Taylor, once again, as I mentioned there with uh, with Toronto, to go away in this competition and get a result and to get you know a win in this one, that's got to be a real positive for the union. Absolutely. I mean, and, and I think with the way it ended, which I'm sure we've all seen the clips of, like, I think that it, you saw them sort of like get in there in defense of their teammates. The whole team sort of wades in there. I think they're outnumbered like three to one because <laughs> the entire Saprisa bench and all of their trainers were involved at, at various points. But it reminds me of I forget where I heard this, but it was on a podcast a long time ago. And it was uh, I think it was a hockey player talking about how you don't really know how like well bonded the team is going to be before until they go on their first extended road trip because inevitably on that extended road trip they're going to all be drinking in a bar inevitably somebody is going to pick a fight with them and then how the team responds to the entire entire bar fight which apparently is just a common thing uh like shows you who's going to jump in who's going to back each other who's going to be there to kind of wade in when needed and i think philadelphia has sort of learned that the entire team are ready to scrap uh jacob glessness is now i'm probably butchering his name but he is now my favorite person in the world for taking on basically the entire Saprisa team at once he really did square up to like nine players at the same time and didn't buy any buy into any of the housery did not get a red card so I think across the board a strong result from Philly I think just the four yellow cards in that melee uh-huh. uh, in, in the 99th minute should we a tight 10 minutes on the tactical uh, breakdown Oof. on that melee Joe Oh, I mean, 10 might not be long enough. We finally arrived at the portion of the show where we get to talk about the poop housery that I mentioned long ago at this point. It is a terrible... I'm going to set the scene and then I'm going to turn it over to Taylor because I think he's rewatched this about 80,000 times and I've only watched it a few. It's a terrible tackle from Saprisa's Ricardo Blanco on Kai Wagner late in the second half. It's in stoppage time. Blanco comes in at full speed, studs up, both feet up. And uh, only gets a yellow card, which is baffling. It is a red card every single day of the week, every single hour of the day. It's a terrible tackle. Thankfully, Kai Wagner's okay. He's fine. But then after that, both teams get into that mosh pit. We get a few yellow cards for, I guess, to be precise. And uh, things get spicy, Taylor. Things get spicy. <laughs> they do, uh, because it is. And Joe, how do you pronounce their Norwegian uh, right center back's name before I say Glesnes, it? You nailed it. Jacob okay, Glesnes. I wanted to make sure. I wanted to make sure. I, I, I said this to Joe uh, while we were off air, but I was watching on TUDNA, and there were various pronunciations for various players. And I don't feel like I know, like Alejandro Bedoya, I know how to say his name for sure. But there are certain names that I'm like, oh, is that how I'm supposed to say that? Like, have I been saying it wrong this whole time? And a few times I felt that way in this game. Uh, but I will forever remember Glesnes now because he is the first one over there when this tackle happens. Uh, as Blanco gets back up, he gets shoved right back over by Glesnes. That leads to more of an altercation, more players coming in. Uh, at one point, I think Colindres comes in and tries to like headbutt him. He gives him that like lead in headbutt so Colindres can then fall over and feign a headbutt. He chest bumps him a couple times. At one point, somebody puts their hand around Glesnes' throat he is never deterred he never stops he continues to talk trash um the other one that stood out to me was i think martinez uh comes over and is the first person to try to calm things down jose martinez from the union uh he immediately gets shoved by by uh david the left back uh, left center back for saprisa then david gets shoved and it keeps going down the line and it was just this sort of like everybody trying to make peace and calm things down and de-escalate but when it's such a uh, like a high energy, lots of people very mad situation, trying to calm things down through physicality tends to only lead to more of a fracas. And you do end up having, I think, like 40 people on the field at one time. My favorite moment remains when a trainer, it is finally Alejandro Bedoya, who really does kind of like separate the two, starts to calm things down. And then a trainer kind of gets in his face from Saprisa. And you can see Bedoya turn and look at him and just be like, get off the field. <laughs> like, why are you on here? Like, you're part of the problem. And I just love Bedoya's sort of no nonsense dealing with that situation. Uh, I did not love the situation itself because I did think that's definitely a red card to Blanco. He knows exactly what he's doing. He is trying to to injure a player. Uh, And I know then I'm going to continue to go here, fellas. So I apologize. I know then that like when Philly posted a clip of this and it was only a yellow card, uh, the Deportivo Deportivo Saprisa Twitter account responded with the challenge from uh, Matthew Rael, a second half substitute on Blanco earlier in the half that itself was very, very physical, very aggressive, and maybe could have been a red card. I don't think I'm, I'm biased here because I don't, 
I like MLS, but I'm not really in, in the like, and therefore they never do anything wrong. But if you watch that tackle, Real is going for the ball. When he slides in, the ball goes away. He tracks the ball the whole time. He's not looking at what damage have I done. When Blanco goes in on that tackle, he is absolutely watching man the whole time, not the ball. It's a full sprint and he knows exactly what he's doing. And I think with that in mind, I blame Blanco and say he should have gotten a red card. But the biggest culprit here is Ismael uh, Cornejo, the official, who I think let this game get completely out of control. I was joking when I said um, a tight 10 on the rule <laughs> analysis there, James, but you both went for it, and I appreciate that very much. Oh, Thank I got you more. Very much. I got more. Oh, well, it's actually nearly time for the next leg of this game. You've been going so long on it, but please continue, Taylor. I would just say that like, this is where, for people who haven't like played or are new to soccer, this is sort of the, the importance of the center official in my mind. Aside from starting the game, blowing the whistle, you know, doing the things an official does, it, you're, they are policing the game to some extent. And, and players, I think, will happily play a physical game if they know what the boundaries are. And if they know this is going to be a call, this isn't going to be a call. This is going to be a card. This isn't going to be a card. You're giving them the boundaries. You're giving them the parameters to operate within. But when sometimes it's a foul and sometimes it's not, sometimes it's a yellow, sometimes it's not, you don't know that consistency. You don't know what the call is going to be. And I think for most professional teams, the response to that is to, okay, well, then we're going to ratchet up the aggression until we know what the calls are. And that's what that sequence was where Blanco gets taken out in the second half. It starts with uh, the Union having a very good counter-attacking opportunity. Uh, Shabilko has won the ball off of Kendall Waston because he's closed down really quickly when Waston goes to play the ball. The ball's already gone, so he kicks Shabilko, takes him out, and the union players are then really, really frustrated because no call is given, and that's when the ball goes to Blanco, and that's when uh, Real makes the tackle. And his frustration is not that, like, oh, come on, I got all ball, which is what I saw the first time. It's him being like, that's a foul? Like, what is a foul, man? And I think that's where the official needed to stamp some authority, but I think he thought a red card would be too much. That's over the top. And then he ends up establishing a precedent of, well, then nothing is a red card. And I think we see how it ends up. So I, I go back to Cornejo really, really made some mistakes in this game. Well, an entertaining one all round, particularly at the ending, it sounds like, gents. Uh, I, I think, by the way, if, it, if this um, was played at the Monsters Cave, we need to call the return leg uh, a game played at the River Monster. Is that the best way <laughs> to describe their stadium? That feels right. That feels right. Feels right. Yeah. Feels yeah. right. <laughs> the, Any more on that? I mean, it's under a bridge, so we could go with the trolls too. The, the, tro- the oh, trolls. Of I miss that one. Beautiful, beautiful. This is why I stick around for these podcasts, gents. This wonderful wordplay. Um, <laughs> and uh, if anyone else is still listening at this point, thank you very much. We appreciate you sticking with us for this podcast. Uh, you, you'll probably never know the technical difficulties we had to put this one to you out there, ladies and gents. So thank you very much, Taylor. Thank you so much for your time today, sir. Right back at you, buddy. Good to have you back. Great to be back. Joe, great to have you back in the catbird seat, my friend. Ryan, I miss the dulcet tones of your melodious voice. (laughs) It is good to have you back. Uh, Thanks for letting me come and chat with you guys. Bye!